I'm Allison Kulo. And I'm Doug Wells. Welcome to Mound Money on KPCW. Robert Bruno is a professor of labor and employment relations at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and the director of the Project for Middle Class Renewal, a research-based initiative tasked with investigating labor policies in today's economy. Bruno, the author of the upcoming book, What Work Is, is looking at a publication date of January 2024 and joins us today to talk about the four-day work week. Robert, thank you for joining us this morning. It's wonderful to be here with you. Thanks for the invite. You've spent a good amount of your career starting to look at kind of work, the policies surrounding it. And I want to begin with an explanation. How did we come to have a five-day work week? (laughs) Uh, Well, it, it certainly wasn't the product of long deliberative research or uh, discussion, um, the the five-day work week really evolved as the country's economy was moving from a more agrarian to a more uh, industrialized-based society. And as more and more workers went into uh, factories and and the day the workday was no longer controlled by the seasons or the sun coming up and the sun uh, coming down. Uh, the, uh, the, the we, we were working every day. I mean, industrial workers in the early part of the 20th century were working seven days a week. So we begin to see movements to 40 hours in five days as a product of a lot of worker organizing and then a lot of uh, uh, progressive groups addressing the significant toll on the lives of working people who are working seven days a week. So the idea was to find some day or days of rest. Um, And then as collective bargaining expanded and labor unions began to grow, uh, you saw uh, the the four-day work week become, the five-day work week become more standard. And then state by state, policies began to uh, emerge uh, uh, to really uh, implement that Work week, and then leading industrialists like Henry Ford, for example, uh, also uh, uh, grasped on to the notion of a standardized uh, work week, um, and then it simply became more common practice, and really hasn't been adjusted since. Is it correct to say that it, around the world, a five-day work week is typical? Yeah. Yeah, if, if you know, it's hard to feel comfortable about saying anything is is typical uh, anymore. But but the understanding or the assumption that at least a day or two days in a seven day period uh, would be would be needed for rest um, <laughs> to balance out. Uh, the, the rest of the work week uh, I led to uh, a, a, you know, a common acceptance that we could do, that work could be done in a five-day period. Uh, so measuring work and then measuring rest and then measuring leisure, you know, essentially we back into five days. Understood. We're having a discussion today about the four-day work week, and I want to just clarify what a four-day work week means and whether it's going to be standard throughout our discussion or if we should clarify. But does a four-day work week mean someone's working 10 
four 10-hour days or are they make working you know four 32-hour days what's what's no. typical as we start this discussion uh, well uh, what happens during those four days uh, I think is really uh, up for up for grabs it, it's it's probably more common when people say the four-day work week they're thinking about moving those eight hours that you would have worked on the fifth day and dispersing them across the four days so that in effect you're you stick with the 40-hour work week and that 40-hour work week of course is tied to federal law that uh, uh, through the Fair Labor Standards Act that was passed in 1935 created the the idea of a standard work week so that if you work beyond the 40 hours you would be assessed the employer would be assessed an overtime payment it, so it was really to determine overtime uh, 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 what overtime work would be uh, so I think the common expectation is you're not changing the, the idea of 40 hours uh, but you're putting it you're pushing now uh, that fifth day uh, into the remaining four days however there there have been um you know proponents and there have been examples where that that week is actually reduced in terms of hours so it's four days and it's still eight hours a day so the standard work week would be 32 hours and there were historically some uh, 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 some large manufacturers in the United States, the Kellogg Company, for example, uh, uh, that uh, that moved to a four-day, 32-hour week, and there have been experiments with with doing that. Uh, without, of course, key condition here would be without a loss of pay uh, to the uh, uh, to the workers. Um, so it's it's up for grabs. What? what what the work the length of the work day what it would be correct no and and of course yeah the the resulting um pay is definitely key one of the trials that recently took place was in the uk and that was where more than 60 companies piloted a four-day work week in 2022 can you outline that trial and the findings that came out of it yeah so it was a, it was really quite a evocative uh, uh, a trial. It, it had representation across quite a few different industries um, and employers of different sizes. Uh, the, the what is remarkable about the the trials uh, is that they they came to very robust and similar findings, and that was there's no reason to go back. I think maybe one company had concluded that they might go back to the five-day work week. Uh, but all of the others, I believe, without exception, agreed that what was experimental would now become standard. Uh, and they did so quite enthusiastically. Uh, and they found across the, the incidences that workers were just as productive they were a lot happier. Turnover was lower. Um, managers were very enthusiastic about that four-day work week. It was easier to supervise and manage workers, and the literature 
on, on worker satisfaction actually uh, indicates that when workers feel good about being where they are, they're not resentful about being where they are, uh, frankly, they're easier people to manage, uh, to work with. Uh, the companies did not see any loss of, 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 of business. Their profits remained, re, re, remained strong. Uh, they, and so they were very confident that they could meet both their business objectives. If you think of business object, objectives as, uh, as only, you know, generating, uh, generating profits while at the same time, they had a more committed uh, and 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 satisfied workforce and and so it's pretty rare in the social sciences that you will find such universal findings across so many different examples right uh, it's almost statistically speaking it's almost a one-to-one -one <laughs> Uh, uh, correlation. Uh, so that certainly makes a strong statement that w we could do a lot more uh, experimenting uh, with a different kind of work week. And some of these were four, some of these were 32 hours okay. while others were 40 hours. And that, yes. that's, that was my follow-up question is you had mentioned universal findings. I believe the study was only in place for six months, but it, were they all working off the same sheet of music? Were they all following the same policies or was it, you know, just basically broke down to the employees went from a five-day work week to a four-day work week? Yeah, well, that's what they had in common that they went from five day to four, four days, but then how they manage that four days, right? And look, there could be other variables and other factors. There, there could be a mixture of working remotely and being in the office, right? That uh, there, there could have been, uh, there could have been that. They may have handled the length of the work day uh, a bit differently. There may have been more or less flex time, maybe around the 10 hours. Um, so you do have the marvelous thing is the employer and and and, and the employer's workers, uh, however they're represented, really can they can navigate this. They can construct th that workday as they see fit, and that's key. And and maybe that is the best. You know, is that they could take it into their own culture, their own you know ways of working, and make it work for them, which sounds you know significant with significant positive outcomes. I, I want to talk a little bit about um, the ROI, because you talked, again, at, you know, basic business objectives, you know, if you're looking at that. I know in the state of Utah, many of us here would remember that the state government offices moved to a four-day work week in 2008, and the pilot ran to 2011. There are still offices that are closed on Fridays, um, and, and that's just, you know, I think what they decided works best for them. The reason they said that they went away from this is that it wasn't showing, it wasn't saving money like they thought it would. My first thought is, is were they just looking at energy savings? You know, you're not heating a building for, a, you know, a fifth day that week. Is that something that employers will look at as they make this calculation? I'm sure there, you know, there, there are a lot of variables that you're, that, that you're going to look at. Certainly one could be just your basic operational expenses. Uh, and that'll obviously be in the context of if you're in the private sector, what's the market for your work? If you're in the public sector, 
uh, what sort of revenues are you able to receive? You know, what are your what does your general fund look like? What is your reserve fund look like? So uh, there are those uh, aspects, and and I know there are school districts. People are surprised by this when we talk about it in the U.S., but quite a few school districts ha have looked at and actually moved to four-day work weeks. And one of the reasons uh, that they give is that there is a savings they find there is a there's a savings to the taxpayer by not having that fifth day uh of operations where buildings have to be heated and you, you you've got you know custodian service and and uh and such so clearly uh, the, the the material the the sort of capital expense size side of the the ledger comes into play um what I, what what I do I, I guess what I one of my, one of the concerns I might have is that when you conclude that there isn't a savings, uh, if you're only looking at that, for example, the energy cost, and you find well we didn't really save much, um, but what about what about worker efficiency that leads to handling or processing, you know, more calls or more paperwork or more files, and you, what about that? What about lower turnover of, of, uh, of workers? What about higher satisfaction levels amongst taxpayers who are engaging with all of these state agencies? Uh, if there is a way to value that, that can really you know, significantly mitigate what might be a flat zero change in, in your actual energy bill, for example. So you, you talk a lot about kind of those positive impacts, you know, and with you, you know, working through this, studying this over, you know, a good period of time, is the four-day work week a good idea? I think it's a lovely idea. Uh, look, you know, it isn't, this isn't, um, this isn't something that's like the Ten Commandments, you know, it, 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 it isn't handed down it's purely arbitrary. We, it's what we've got. We've stumbled into it. We keep using it. Policy grafted on top of it. But we never stepped back and said, well, do we need to work five days to generate the goods and services that we need? Do we need 40 hours to create enough revenue to support the workers that are employed? I mean, isn't it possible that maybe in four hours of, of work time, you pay for yourself and you help generate profits? Do you really need, do you really need eight? And what are the, what are the opportunity costs? What about the stress? Uh, what about the fact that we're not living so close to our jobs anymore? We got to drive and we get on the freeway or that we have to take the trains and then we have to walk and there's cost. And maybe the workday is eight hours, but it's really 12 hours when it comes to preparing for work, traveling to work. And then we want people to come home and we want them to go to the kids PTA. You know, you're supposed to go to the PTA meeting. You're supposed to go to the, meet the kids teachers. You're supposed to go to the soccer game. What, you, you know, meet, make sure you meet all of your doctor appointments and you want to balance all that out. And all the evidence suggests is we could have a shorter work week, lose nothing. In fact, we would probably be more efficient. We'd have people who are happier in the workplace um, and you'd have, you'd have firms, you'd have public 
agencies and private firms that would be uh, that would be just as productive, just as successful, and I would suggest would probably be held in higher esteem, not just by their workers, but by the communities in which they're housed. So I think we should, as quickly as possible, stop thinking of the 40-hour work week as somehow God-given uh, and, uh, and, and look at better alternatives. Is the four-hour work week something just considered for white-collar workers, or is this something? You know, or is it just like something for the elite, or is can this be seen among many industries? Can this be seen among the entire population? So, yeah, I, I mean, I do think you can you can um, really upscale this. That you could universalize this. Now, th there would be different challenges in different industries uh, for any number of examples, but but. Some folks have said, well, how would you, you know, you can't do it in education, right? I mean, kids have to go to school five days. Well, actually, no, kids ha have to go to school. So most states say kids have to be in school so many days a year, so many hours. Your school year can be changed. The school day uh, can be changed. So you can certainly do it there. Uh, it's probably easier in more professional settings. Uh, but of course, that speaks to the control that those workers have to set their work schedule. And if it's good for them, we should think about, you know, why wouldn't it be good for workers in a manufacturing setting, for example? You might have to keep the plant running 24-7, but perhaps people are on different four-day schedules mm -hmm. and they could be rotating. So their four days could be, you know, that four-day uh, block could be different from here to there. Construction might be a very similar uh, situation where you know you have a time frame where you have to get the project done, you have to get it done on time, so you're probably going to have longer days. Um, but an additional workforce that's skilled could also essentially cover the additional day. So you could be working seven, you know, the, the job could be seven days if it needed to be, but it'd be a different group of workers that would be engaged in that. So I don't see any. I don't see any organic reason why the four-day work week would have to be limited to one industry, uh, one uh, uh, one job sector. And I think one thing that we'd need to throw out as an assumption is what a weekend is. Um, so that would change as well. You mentioned, you know, that this has been so established that you know policy has been grafted on top of you know these forty hours, and that the forty-hour work week is tied to federal law. I know that there's some U.S. states proposing a four-day work week. California, Massachusetts, Missouri, Pennsylvania, Texas, maybe even Vermont. How does that work with then federal law? How would that layer? Uh, well, the federal law is is um, uh, addressing hours uh, in that work week. So it's really about hours. The federal law isn't saying it has to be Monday through Friday. It has to be five days. It's saying that if you are a an employee and uh, you're not an exempt employee, uh, after 40 hours in a week, you become eligible for uh, for overtime. But it doesn't say where those 40 hours have to be worked, and it doesn't say that you have to work 40 hours. It just says under federal law in the private sector you're eligible for overtime pay if you work over 
40 hours in the, in the week. And of course, if you're in a unionized setting, your collective bargaining agreements will probably grant you overtime if you work more than eight in a day. There you go. So again, some nuances that are going to be talked about, figured out as this uh, continues to be ironed out. As we wrap up, I want to just come back to the point that you made about remote work. And I want to just understand your thoughts with regards to remote work and how you might think that would um, either further or be a detractor from this conversation. It, it, it would seem to me that where you could legitimately generate a, a flexible schedule where at least some work would be done remotely that you would enhance your capacity to construct a four-day work week, right? Uh, that, that that would be an additional lever that would give both the workers and the employer the opportunity to construct uh, a, a shorter uh, work week. Um, so I, I think it would be a contributor to helping us move. And of course, some industries, therefore, and some occupations are going to be in a much better position to more quickly move to four days than would others. But even, even if, if it's done in stages, once we begin to see that a growing number of workers are doing this without uh, without any significant problem and it's very beneficial, we'll begin to upscale it. Other workers in other industries are going to say, okay, well, how do we do that here? Even if remote work like construction or manufacturing work, you know, you're not going to do that. You're not going to do uh, work in a, in, a, in a retail grocery store. You're not going to be able to do that uh, remotely. But uh, as more and more of the population really sees the benefit in that four-day work week, you, policymakers will be challenged to find a way to have it expand. I don't think you need remote work to do it, but clearly if you have that capacity, it, it, it makes it a bit easier to, to go from five to four. Well, we appreciate the insights that you've been sharing with us with regards to the four-day work week. I've been speaking with Robert Bruno. He's a professor of labor and employment relations at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Thank you so much for joining me this morning on Mountain Money. It was my pleasure. Thank you. The Women Tech Awards is the premier award program for women in technology with ties to Silicon Slopes and has recognized some of the most prestigious and up-and-coming women throughout the technology industry. Sydney Rogers-Tetro, president of the Women's Tech Council, joins us this morning to talk more about the organization. Sydney, thanks for joining us. For having me, I'm excited to be here. Let's begin with learning a bit more about the Women's Tech Council. Tell us more about it and why was it founded? So the Women's Tech Council, it's a nonprofit. We started it about 15 years ago, really focused on the economic impact of women in tech from high school to the boardroom and created programs really focused on mentoring, visibility, opportunity, and networking. All of those things that every stage of the talent pipeline are just really critical to increasing the number of women in technology. Yeah, and you guys have a big event coming up on October 11th of this year. It's the Woman Tech Awards, um, and this is the 16th annual event. Um, take us back to another origin question. How did this start, um, and, and why did you guys decide to do an event like this? 
It's a great question. One of the pillars of the organization has been always been this idea of visibility and that when you create visibility and you shine a light on the talent of great people that you can create not just role models, but acceleration for people in their careers. And what we found is that for women in tech, there wasn't really a place that was shining a light on all these talented people impacting the tech industry. If you're a CEO or a super senior executive, there's lots of places to get recognition. But sometimes in lots of places where women are doing amazing things in technology, we saw this great opportunity to create visibility. And so we, cre we created this platform to do that. And do you know what the coolest thing about it has become is not only do you get to meet and expand the networks of these women, but all, 90% of the women that are recognized within six to nine months have some career acceleration happen to them because you've shown the world how awesome they are and the great things that they're doing. And if we can do more of that for people, it makes a huge difference in the world. I want to just go back to what you just said. 90% of the women recognized saw acceleration in their careers. And is that recognition through this awards program or just in general? The, um, that's the data that we have tracked through this awards program. That's amazing. And, you know, I think it's um, sometimes uh, we have a narrow thought of what, you know, roles women have in the technology world. Can you talk about some of those roles this year's finalists hold to help us expand as far as, you know, what types of, of positions everyone has? Yeah, I mean, the coolest thing about tech is almost every business is becoming a tech business. And so we think about two types of places where women are having great impact. It is technology roles in um, any company and then inside of technology companies, because roles exist everything from, I mean, this year we have, we have a lot of women who are running, who are VPs of engineering and tech and technology operations. We have inventors. We have women who are serving in, at like Hill Air Force Base. Uh, we have women who have developed apps that are specifically around like early stage detection for cancer. We have some women who are, re are early stage CEOs of new technology that they're inventing. And what we find is that you're really trying to recognize women in all, in all areas from user design to product management, to technology, to research, to education, all of these places that these talented people are having tremendous impact, we get an opportunity to showcase them. Yeah, so your nominees are getting showcased and so so is your organization. Uh, so October is a big month for your organization, but talk to us about the other 11 months. What types of things do you do to, to help out your members? Yeah, this is, a you know, the organization is super fun. And one of the things that we focus on the organization is repeatable, impactful programs. And because the stages of the talent pipeline are so critical to us, I mean, in technology today, roughly only about 25% of the workforce are women. And these tend to represent higher paying jobs and all sorts of other opportunities for women. That's the big, and we need that diverse thinking in order to solve a lot of the world's problems. So that's a really big focus. So we look at every stage and create programs. We have a, specifically, we have like a high school program. That high school program's had about, it's called She Tech. It's had about 35,000 high school girls go through it, about 3,000 each year. And it is focused on providing mentors and role models to ninth through 12th grade girls who very rarely have seen women in tech, but when they see them, 
they see who they can become. And it has catapulted a lot of young women then into studying STEM and to then pathwaying in. And so we have programs basically at every stage, a program like the SheTech program, we have a Shatterless program, which recognize companies that are enacting practices to increase the number of women in technology. We have women on boards programs. So we really are good at saying, like, there's an opportunity for us to come together as a community and make demonstrable change at different stages. And then we've created programs and we execute against them. Part of the recognition that you're giving this year is also recognizing rising stars. Um, what is this recognition and why was it important to add this honor? So just as we've been talking about, as you look at all these places that you can make impact, creating visibility for women who are earlier in their career and doing amazing things has been a really important part of the program all along. So we've recognized rising stars over the years, but this year we decided to make it an entire group, a, a much bigger group and list of women, because we've seen such a great return on how you create visibility and the impact it's had for the individual. We saw this opportunity to say, we have amazingly talented women in Rising Star. Let's make sure that we shine a light on that because what we know is the more people you recognize, the more people you help, and then the more amplification that gives in community. Because if you can help, the more people you help, the broader the reach. So it's really cool that we're going to do this. We're doing this in the Rising Star Bucket. We're actually also doing this in our College Student Pathways program too, creating a big, a bigger group of young women in college that we're recognizing so that we can shine a light on the very great things they're doing and that in turn will spread through the rest of their career. You know, tech is a super exciting career for young people. It offers a lot of opportunities. It also comes with a fairly dark shadow, right? Uh, there's lots of big companies that uh, have been reported to have this bro culture. Uh, and as, as you said, only 25% of the uh, senior folks in tech are, are women. So in general, unfortunately, tech is, is kind of known for ageism. Uh, it's really a young person's game for, in many companies, although it should not be. Uh, and then unfortunately, sexism, uh, it's run primarily uh, by men. Has that been improving over the last decade? Where, where are we at and, and you know, what work remains to be done there? I mean, you, you make, I think, an extremely important point, and that is one of the focuses of the organization is you've got to increase the number of women in tech. We have clearly not arrived because the numbers haven't changed fast enough. And one of the things that we're particularly focused on is how do you accelerate that change? How do you make sure that there are, I mean, the workforce is basically 50% men and women. How do we make sure that tech is representative of that type of talent? One of the things that we think drives that change is like broader visibility recognition and increasing a faster pathway into the C-suite. So only 5% of tech executives are women. That number has been extremely slow to change. And what that means is the steps right below that, we have to increase more women. Um, and to do that, you have to make sure that not only is there visibility there, but that you're partnering with the men who are leading companies to drive change in a much faster place. And that's a place that we really lean into. It's the reason our board is half of half of our executive board are men, because that partnership is going to be the fastest way for us to create change. And then we all just have to lean in that we're willing to make change 
fast and do things that make a really big difference for individuals. So about a decade ago, I was involved with a, a local coding boot camp. Um, and it was, I was, I was startled when I looked at the stats because one of our goals was to get as close to 50-50 male, female participants. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was introduced to the stats, I actually saw that the numbers were getting worse. Now, this was a decade ago, not better. There were fewer women 20 years ago than there were 10 years ago. How does it work now? How has the last decade uh, gone? Have there been improvements or has it continued to slide backwards? So I'll answer that question in two ways. You know, I did my undergrad in computer science and I was one of three women in that program. And today, if you looked at pure computer science stats, there are fewer women graduating than when I graduated and I was you know, one of three. But one of the things that has transformed in tech is that there are many other degrees and pathways that didn't exist at the time I came through. We are actually seeing a lot more women go into data science, into the program, the product management and the UX UI design. Um, we've also you know, brought into information systems and network engineering. So what we're starting to see is that women are expanding into more of those, even though our computer science one hasn't held, but we still have a ways to go. I think that's why we all shine a light on this and we're all working so feverishly to solve this. And one of the, one of the things that our research has shown that holds back is not just what you suggested, culture of companies, but it's also this role model and mentors. Like if companies don't have women in those senior positions, it's hard for other women to see those pathways in. And so we have to create more accelerated opportunity and these role models and mentors, not just for young women coming in, but also for those women who are mid-career so that they can see pathways that can make them go faster. I would say we don't have all the answers, but it is the reason we create programs like the Women Tech Council or the Women Tech Awards, because you see when you recognize them, fast change. And one of the cool things about like the awards are the entire community shows up. And so you're creating this lens, not just for women, but for all the men and women in, in the ecosystem, they see the talent and then they're active participants in making change, which is what we all need really to make the numbers change faster. I know that this isn't necessarily just a, a Utah problem, that increasing women in tech is something that we want to do all around. Are you, um, do you partner with other organizations nationally to work on this together? We do, and there are a lot of great um, organizations. Like you said, the numbers are pretty much the same everywhere across the country. And there are a lot of great programs and groups that have come together in, because what you need is both national reach and then you need local implementation. You need this local activation. And so there's a really great integrated ecosystem of organizations across the country that are working together. You know, even programs like our high school program of SheTech We've partnered in a lot of the Rocky Mountain states and they have implemented that with their technology organizations for the same reason. Like when you find great things that make a difference, you come together and then you use that to help make um, the change for the ecosystem, which is what I think everyone who spends time in this ecosystem is about. Our ideal scenario for all of us would be 10 years from now, we're not having these conversations because we made so much progress on change. 
Well, I hope I hope you guys are right, and if that does become the future in Utah, uh, Women's Tech Council will get some of the credit for that. You guys are doing great work. I've I've been at several of your events. I've been at some other events where you guys present as as one of the one of the presentations, one of the sessions, uh, and I applaud you guys for what you're doing. Like like I said, I was involved in this about a decade ago, trying to bring coding skills and make it more mm -hmm. approachable for all groups. Uh, you know, uh, minorities, women, et cetera. So what you guys are doing is important uh, and it's having impact. And speaking of impact, this year's impact award recipient is Dr. Susan Madsen. Tell us about Dr. Susan Madsen. Well, thank you. And thank you for all of you know, your support and just getting involved to help us all make change. So Dr. Madsen um, is leading an initiative called The Bold Way Forward. And the bold way forward is how do we make accelerated change for women in all areas? And STEM is one particular focus of this program. It's got an objective for change by 2030 by uniting all voices for change across all of the big challenges, technology being one of them. Dr. Madsen has spent her entire career devoted to how do you change the ecosystem um, and include more women and make demonstrable differences for the next generation. So this year we're super excited to recognize that work that she has spent a lifetime doing, but for us in technology that just is helping us amplify further and further and unite those resources with that lens of change. And so all of that work is what we recognize. The impact award for us is given to either a person or an organization who is doing significant effort to help us just change the landscape so that the next generations have a different set of opportunities than any of us have had. And Dr. Madsen has spent her entire career in exactly that. As people are listening to this interview and they're understanding you know, the importance of raising the, the level of recognition and the visibility of these types of roles. Do they need themselves to be involved in the tech industry in order to get um, involved in your organization or in order to help support what you're doing? So in our organization, our membership is driven um, both by people who are in technology companies and technology roles in other companies or providing services into that technology ecosystem. So it's a very broad, our membership is free because we want everyone to be able to be included in making that change. We love people to help us. Our SheTech program takes about a thousand volunteers every year. So we're an organization that's really built by the work and activity of people who step up in the community to help us basically show up and, and make a difference. So it's easy to get involved in our organization. And we really welcome everyone who's willing to just step with us and say, hey, together we make a bigger impact. Yeah, you know, one of the biggest impacts we can make, it's, it's great to have organizations and, and support groups uh, like yours. It's also great to, to empower parents and to give them tools to help uh, their daughters um, at home and to encourage something like that, uh, which frankly is how I got involved a decade ago. My, I have two daughters um, and I, I wanted to let them know that this world's open for them as well. I moved here from the Bay Area. Uh, but I'm curious, do you guys have any tools, do you have any programs for parents to encourage their kids to explore this field? 
So the way that we involve parents is predominantly through that SheTech program. It, the SheTech program is the only um, program that is supported by the State Board of Education in the CTE program um, for young women. And that program, parents are one of those avenues that do encourage those girls in, because SheTech isn't about girls who think that they're gonna be going into tech. It's about showing them that technology is part of everything that they that they love. We actually even run a parent session at our Explorer Day for parents who come so that we can have conversations with them about that. I think one of the very best things that parents can do is expose those young women to other women and to other opportunities that they are, wouldn't normally get in their day-to-day -day life. That's how we see the most change. We find that when Girls tell stories of other women who have forged past and they find some commonality. They see themselves in that place and then they become activated to go into those pathways. We've seen it thousands of times. And so we try to create that. We actually have a bunch of internship programs. Like this year, we're partnering with one of the, with Tech Buzz. And we have a SheTech internship program. Those girls are going around and interviewing people and creating content for us. We have an internship program in the summer. So anything that parents can do to encourage girls to just get involved and create and be on our student board or participate in the days, we find that those just start changing the ways everyone thinks about their opportunity for who they can become in the future. We've been speaking with Sydney uh, Tetro, Sydney Rogers Tetro with Utah's Women Tech Council. Uh, good luck to you on your program. We need to wrap up now, but if people want to find out more about your program, which is on October 11th, uh, where do they go for more information? Yes, you can just go to womentechcouncil.org and get all of the information, and we would love for everyone to be there and help um, support and recognize and celebrate the great talent we have Sydney, here in the state. Thank you. thank you for joining us this morning. And Prime IV Park City uses proprietary blends of vitamins, minerals, amino acids, and IV fluids to give cells rapid access to nutrients, including healing. Joining us this morning to highlight more about this new business in Park City is Megan James. Megan, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. So Prime IV, I think I've seen stuff like this in, in uh, Las Vegas, uh, where they're, they're trying to get people energized again, but apparently it's not just for, for Las Vegas. Uh, tell our audience what Prime IV is and, and how it might uh, uh, enhance the active lifestyle here in Park City. Uh, we offer high quality vitamin infusions through an IV and injections or shots in a relaxing spa environment and at an affordable price. So we do offer those mobile IVs as well, and we can bring a nurse out to you, but most of our customers prefer to come into our spa and relax in our famous massage chairs while they get their IV. So when reviewing your website and as well, you, you were able to bring in um, menus. Yes. Uh, it, it looks like there's a number of IV, inf IV infusions. What types of treatments do you offer? And then I guess too, like, I'm slightly overwhelmed. So, you know, yes. how do you help people narrow this down? Great question. So every IV, no matter what you pick on that menu, it's a liter of fluid. That's the equivalent of drinking two and a half gallons of water. So your body um, will be nice and hydrated. And then the nutrients are going right into your bloodstream with the potential of being absorbed by the body 100%. 
that's different than the 20% that you potentially absorb from an oral supplement. So there really isn't another way to get that amount of hydration or the instant nutritional health boost other than through the IV. And so that's why people are choosing to come in for IV therapy. And the treatments that we offer are all customized for the individual. So one way that we set ourselves apart from our competition is that we compound all of our IVs in a compound room, just like in a pharmacy under a pharmacy grade flow hood. So we adhere to the highest standards of safety in the industry and we're compounding all our IVs specifically for to meet the needs of that person. So you'll see all the potential ones you can choose and then we will customize and add things or delete things based on what that person is looking to get out of their experience. So walk us through kind of the whole idea of using IVs to replenish, re-energize uh, yourself. I, I mentioned Las Vegas is the yes. first place I, I saw it. I suspect either Hollywood or Las Vegas is where this began, where people started doing this outside of a medical need uh, but really to enhance their life. How long has this been going on and where did it start? Yeah, good questions. Um, well, we almost all of us can benefit from IV therapy because we all feel better when we're hydrated and not suffering from a vitamin deficiency. And um, yeah, I love the question of who, who can benefit from it because it's basically almost all of us. We treat people for chronic migraines and we are able to give medicine as well. So Tordal and Zofran. So people suffering from an active migraine can benefit. And we like to see people in between migraines for preventative treatment as well. We treat people for seasonal allergies and have great success with that. Chronic fatigue, long haul COVID. And we do, and it's not just the Hollywood elite. We do infusions for worn out construction workers and hairstylists who are looking to boost their energy. And we also, you mentioned the competitive athlete possibility. We do a lot of that in Park City. Um, athletes who are looking to boost endurance and reduce recovery time. So just last week, I had a customer come in after her 94th marathon. She's been running marathons for many years, received an infusion the day before her last three, and she could not wait to come back in and tell me she qualified for Boston. Her recovery time is cut down dramatically, um, and she can't wait to do it before well, her next event. Well, let's just hope she passes her urine test. <laughs> we don't want That's her getting right. disqualified. <laughs> Uh, so those are athletes. What, what about, you know, I'm about to be 60 here, you know, and, and we tend, a lot of people tend to move here, you know, later in life in their 40s or 50s. Uh, what are the benefits for, for those of us that are, are getting aches and pains as we get a little bit older? Yeah, it can be really beneficial for those of us that are working, on, not just running marathons, but just doing what we do in our ordinary life, trying to stay healthy um, and age gracefully. So we do um, treat, um, you mentioned the occasional hangover. We do the occasional hangover and altitude sickness for people that come to Park City that didn't realize how dry and high the, um, the climate is. And um, we also do a lot of hair, skin and nails treatments with our, through the IV. Um, but our most popular IV is currently the immunity drip. 
with the seasons changing, kids going back to school, um, people are coming in to boost their immune system and to speed recovery. So I recommend if you can tell when you have that tickle in the back of your throat and you're just about to come down with something, come in and see us, try that immunity drip. And often you can bypass that cold altogether. Anything that I can do to bypass a cold is definitely something I would go for. Now, with us being a business show, I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, why you were interested in looking at this type of business. From my understanding, this is a franchise. Mm -hmm. How did you start to investigate this and and what were some of the key elements that made you feel that this would be a great fit for Park City? Yeah, great question. I'm a Utah native myself. I've always loved Park City. I spend a lot of time in the mountains, biking and skiing myself. And I love that Park City still has that small town feel as a business owner that has been uh, so supportive for us. So the Chamber of Commerce has been great to work with. We have so many neighboring wellness businesses right there where we're located in New Park. So um, we have been able to partner with other like-minded business owners. And as you've mentioned before, Park City is a place full of outdoor recreational opportunities. And IVs are so beneficial to all of us who ski, bike, hike at any, at any level, just for fun. So those of us that are locals, particularly now, we're all buying season passes because the cost of a day pass is pretty high. Uh, I notice in your program, you also have a membership program. It's not a season pass, uh, but I suspect it's a monthly program. Tell our listeners about that. Yeah, we do many IV treatments for visitors from out of town, but the majority of our clients are locals and they come in to receive ID, IV treatment either once a month or twice a month, depending on what their goal and needs are. So we do offer monthly memberships that include any IV off the menu either once or twice a month, and they include certain vitamin injections as well. So along with discounts, members get to sit in the famous massage chairs while they get their IV. Um, and we sell those memberships as packages or punch cards as well. So there's something for everyone at, very, at various different price points. Um, so it just depends on, we can meet people's needs if they're in and out of town or just in town for a few months. Um, we have lots of different options for memberships. So we've got about 30 seconds left. I'd love for you to share with our listeners where you're located and how they can find out more information about your business. We are located in Kimball Junction in the New Park Development. We're right next to PC Yoga and across the street from Hill's Kitchen. Our address is 1154 Center Drive. We're open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 6. And you can book an intro offer discount online at primeivhydration.com. To keep an eye on our monthly specials, you can follow us on social media at Prime IV Park City, Utah. Sounds like you've got it all down. It's been wonderful talking with you. We've been spending time with Megan James. She's with Prime IV Hydration and Wellness, located right there in Redstone here at Kimball Junction in Park City. Megan, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Mound Money. Please leave a review on your podcast app. It would be helpful for us.